I think we need to quit mincing words. What it was gonna be was an armed revolution. This could have been the spark that started a new civil war. That would have been good for no one. We've gotten exceedingly lucky that more bloodshed did not happen because the potential has been there from the start. The loss of life that we saw on January 6th, the potential was so much more. And I do fear for this next election cycle because who knows what that might bring. If, if a president that's willing to try to, to whip up a civil war amongst his followers using lies and deceit and snake oil, regardless of the, the human impact, what else is he going to do if he gets elected again? All bets are off at that point. I have three daughters. I have a granddaughter. And I fear for the world that they will inherit if we do not start holding the, these, these people to account. Holding people to account? There's an idea. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. I got the feeling that something ain't right. No, it ain't. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. I am. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the Bradcast, as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in L.A., also in California in Red Bluff and Redding on KFOI, Round Mountains KKRN, and Eureka's KGOE. Up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO, Eugene's KEPW, Lancaster, Pennsylvania's WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU, Columbus, Ohio's WGRN, in Palinville, New York on WLPP, in Rochester, New York on WRFZ, down in New Orleans on WHIV, out in Gallup, New Mexico on KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ, in Seattle on KODX, Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR, and Minneapolis, St. Paul's, AM 950 KTNF. We also stream coast to coast and around the globe every day on the internets. On the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, No Lies Radio, Verdant Square Radio, Detour Talk, and most of your favorite podcast sites. Blanketing planet Earth five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, all-around swell fellow, says me from bradblog.com. Thank you very much for joining us today for, once again, special coverage on the broadcast of another rather stunning, rather gripping public hearing in the bipartisan U.S. House Select Committee uh, investigation of the January 6, 2021 insurrection at the U.S. Capitol and Donald Trump's multiple attempts to steal the 2020 election. Uh, on Tuesday, the panel held their seventh such public hearing, and like the first six, frankly, it was gripping. It did not disappoint, and we will have two at least three, if you count Desi Doyen, uh, <laughs> panelists here to uh, try to make sense of it all. But to quickly reset our story, prior to the latest Day 7 hearing, the committee has presented a mountain of so far undisputed evidence that Donald Trump knew very early on that his claims about a fraudulent, stolen presidential election in 2020 were, in fact, 
completely fraudulent themselves. He also knew that his many attempts to steal the election in several different states and on the day that Joe Biden's electoral college was to be electoral college victory was to be confirmed during a joint session of Congress presided over by, by his vice president, Mike Pence, that those attempts were all unlawful as well. He attempted them anyway. He pressured his former acting attorney general, Jeff Rosen, and other top DOJ officials to seize voting machines and instruct swing state legislatures that the department had found election-changing fraud when, in fact, they absolutely had not. Even Trump's own longtime apologist and cover-up artist, Attorney General Bill Barr, refused to go along with the scheme, calling the claims BS. He ended up resigning instead of playing along. The committee has shown that after the election, which Trump lost, his campaign and administration attempted to create phony slates of alternate electors in key swing states in hopes that Mike Pence would block the counting of legitimate electoral votes and help to see them awarded to Trump instead, either by Congress or GOP-controlled state uh, legislatures in swing states. He did all of this, even though everyone involved, including Trump himself and the guy who pushed the scheme for Mike Pence to award the election to Trump, that would be rogue attorney John Eastman, uh, they knew that doing so was unlawful and or unconstitutional, but they tried to do it anyway, despite one top attorney at the White House and pretty much everywhere else telling them that it was unlawful and or unconstitutional. And when Trump threatened to install a low-level DOJ official, Jeffrey Clark, as acting attorney general at the Justice Department, pretty much every high-ranking DOJ official threatened to resign as several of them testified during previous hearings rather than watch this, this guy, Jeff Clark, come in and lie to state legislatures that the DOJ had found some sort of election-changing fraud. Throughout the process to steal the 2020 election, Trump conspired with top cronies like Rudy Giuliani and apparently senators like Lindsey Graham both of whom who have now been subpoenaed in Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis's election probe in Atlanta, Georgia. Uh, they were uh, conspiring with Trump to lie to key state officials about fraud, even going so far as to target and, yes, terrorize election workers who they knew had committed no fraud. But as testimony to the uh, House J6 committee has revealed in previous hearings, they saw their lives destroyed anyway by the relentless and false campaign targeting them with these phony claims that they had helped somehow to steal the election. When, in fact, they worked endless hours to try and accomplish uh, to, to help accomplish that election successfully in the middle of a pandemic. On the day of Trump's insurrection on January 6th, the then president was informed by law enforcement officials that his supporters were packing all manner of weapons at the rally before his appearance uh, on the ellipse, where he repeated all of the fraudulent claims that he knew to be fraudulent after insisting unsuccessfully, I believe, that his Secret Service detail allow those angry armed supporters into the rally site anyway. That, according to eyewitness Cassidy Hutchinson, a top aide to Trump's chief of staff, Mark Meadows, who testified just before uh, July 4th so that the rally would look good on television. Let them all in, after all. They weren't coming after him, he told the Secret Service. 
they weren't there to harm him. But of course, as we learned during Tuesday's hearings, which ended just over an hour ago or so, Trump knew that he would be directing that armed mob toward the Capitol, even though his White House advisors had strongly advised him not to do so. He did it anyway. And once the Capitol was attacked in a deadly insurrection, Trump spent some three hours at the White House doing nothing at all to quell the riot, despite attempts from top White House counsel Pat Cipollone and others to encourage him to put out a statement to help end the violence. That, even as he was told that January 6 insurrectionists attacking the Capitol were attempting to hunt down and kill his own vice president, Mike Pence, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, and others. After Trump's insurrection resulted in an hours-long disruption of the official government proceeding to confirm Joe Biden's victory, the disgraced loser issued a tepid video telling his supporters he loved them but that they should go home. One of them, who testified on Tuesday, said that that was it, that that tweet, after being invited uh, to come to support Donald Trump, after that tweet, he, he felt that it was time to go home. That was it. A tweet from a president was enough to send him home after he had felt he had been invited by the president to come to D.C. and march on the Capitol. After the dust cleared, key players in the conspiracy like Giuliani and Eastman and several members of Congress would ask for blanket pardons for their crimes. Trump did not offer them in return. And that, of course, is just some of what we learned through the bipartisan House Select Committee's first six days of public testimony. And on Tuesday, they held their seventh hearing, focusing on several aspects leading up to the January 6 attack. The first part of Tuesday's hearings focused on the insane hours-long meeting at the White House on December 18, 2020, uh, 2020, when Trump attorney Sidney Powell, convicted federal felon and former Trump National Security Advisor General Michael Flynn, and former Overstock.com billionaire CEO Patrick Byrne, for some reason, were all allowed into the White House for a meeting with Donald Trump. It went on for hours as they squared off with White House attorneys over their hope of issuing an executive order to have the military seize the nation's voting machines and to declare Sidney Powell to be a special counsel with the power to investigate the non-existent fraud and issue warrants for arrests. The committee featured new video testimony from Pat Cipollone, Trump's former White House counsel, recalling the explosive meeting at the White House, describing the scheme to seize voting machines as, quote, a terrible idea. That's not how we do things in the United States, Cipollone testified on videotape last Friday. Another aide described the meeting as unhinged. The second part of today's hearings focused on Trump's use of far-right extremist groups like the Oath Keepers and the Proud Boys to lead what he knew would likely be a paramilitary attack on the U.S. Capitol. It was first announced by that infamous tweet at 1.42 a.m., on December 19, just hours after the unhinged meeting with Powell and Flynn and the rest, inviting his supporters to come to D.C. on January 6 for what he declared would be a, quote, wild event. Committee member, 
Congresswoman Stephanie Murphy of Florida, who, along with Maryland Congressman Jamie Raskin, led most of the day's testimony and questioning on day seven, said that Trump's tweet right after that meeting in the middle of the night, quote, served as a call to action and in some cases a call to arms. It set off his supporters in the right wing media to rally the troops, as revealed by a video montage of what happened next. It's Saturday, December 19th. The year is 2020, and one of the most historic events in American history has just taken place. President Trump, in the early morning hours today, tweeted that he wants the American people to march on Washington, D.C. on January 6, 2021. And now Donald Trump is calling on his supporters to descend on Washington, D.C., January 6th. He is now calling on we, the people, to take action and to show our numbers. We're going to only be saved by millions of Americans moving to Washington, occupying the entire area, if, if necessary, storming right into the Capitol. You know, there, we, we know the rules of engagement. If you have enough people, you can push down any kind of a fence or a wall. This could be Trump's last stand. And it's a time when he has specifically called on his supporters to arrive in D.C. That's something that may actually be the big push. Trump supporters need to say, this is it. It's now or never. You better understand something, son. You better understand something. Red wave, bitch. Red wave. This is going to be a red wedding going down January 6th. On that day, Trump says, show up for a protest. It's going to be wild. And based on what we've already seen from the previous events, I think Trump is absolutely correct. Mother, you better look outside. <laughs> you better look out January 6th. Kick that door open. Look down the street. There's going to be a million plus geeked up armed Americans. <laughs> the time for games is over. The time for action is now. Where were you when history called? Where were you when you and your children's destiny and future was on the line? That was Alex Jones and a whole bunch of other right-wingers uh, responding to Donald Trump's tweet on December 19, calling his supporters to Washington, D.C. for uh, for a protest, a rally that he said would be wild. And in fact, it shows that they knew in advance what they were heading to D.C. for, to storm the Capitol. They knew the rules of engagement. They cited the Red Wedding uh, from uh, what is that Game, Game of, of Thrones? Thrones yeah, uh, where a whole bunch of people were murdered at a wedding. <laughs> there was a lot to unpack from Tuesday's day seven hearings, including testimony at the end by two witnesses, Jason Van Tatenhove, an independent journalist turned self-described oath keepers propagandist for several years, though he left them five years ago after seeing them become more and more racist and violent. You heard him at the top of this show. Concerned about what could happen next at the next election if there is no accountability for what happened during the last one. The other witness, Stephen Ayers, was a January 6th rioter and a Trump believer. He was not tied to any of the extremist groups, but just a guy who answered Trump's call to come to D.C. and fight like hell to, well, what he thought was to save the country. He believed Trump needed him to do so. He was arrested and pleaded guilty to disorderly conduct at the Capitol. He now regrets every part of it. He believes it was all a big con, but has since lost his job and much more after having fallen for Trump's big 
violent, deadly lie. Joining us now to make some sense of all of this, somehow, our two old friends of the Bradcast, of course, as always, our special for our special coverage of the January 6 hearings, the great and indefatigable Heather Digby Parton is here. She's known as simply Digby at her long-running Hullabaloo blog and is a long-time award-winning opinion and an- analysis journalist at Salon.com. Welcome back, Digby. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Also, another old friend, similarly indefatigable, I should note, David Ferris is an associate professor of political science at Roosevelt University in Chicago. He's now a contributor at Newsweek. We won't hold that against him. He's also the author of the book, It is Time to Fight Dirty, How Democrats Can Build a Lasting Majority in American Politics. Oh, Mr. Ferris, welcome back to the broadcast, sir. Great to be here, Brad. (laughs) All right. Well, uh, big picture first, and then we'll sort of focus on the uh, first half of the hearing, take a break, come back for the second half, which actually I thought was even more compelling. Uh, Heather, uh, quickly, your overall takeaway from Tuesday's hearing. I I, I thought, you know, what more could there possibly be? And in fact, there was more. Uh, (laughs) Did the uh, the committee further their mission as you see it, or or are they reaching a point of diminishing returns at this point? Oh no! Oh, for sure. They they what they did was, and as you said in your in your opening, they've been setting up the various strands, or what Andrew Weissman, the Mueller uh, prosecutor who just wrote a big op-ed in the New York Times this week, mm-hmm. calls a hub and spoke mm. um, sort of conspiracy, which is just that there were a number of different you know spokes going out from the Oval Office, mm-hmm. uh, which included all the ones that you mentioned, you know, the, the voter fraud, the elector, mm-hmm. the fake electors, the DOJ, Mike Pence, you know, all these things. And this was one of those spokes, and it's a huge one because it is the spoke that leads from the White House and the Oval Office to the insurrection on mm-hmm. January 6th. That part of the, the whole, the, the coup plot, the, mm-hmm. you know, the conspiracy there to keep Trump in office come what may, that was that was a huge one, and they were, so they were connecting the dots there between, and I think specifically in this hearing, which I hope we can talk about that December eighteenth uh, meeting, yes, yes, we and will. and how Trump just you know within hours of the meeting went out and declared this this rally for January sixth, and, yep. and sent up a huge sort of um, scurrying among his his people who were already planning a different rally for after the inauguration. They were going to model it on the Women's March, I mm-hmm. think, to be after the um, the Biden in- uh, inauguration. Suddenly, they were scrambling to change it to January 6th, where, of course, it had a completely different intention, because originally they were going to hold the rally as a big protest against the election of Joe Biden and blah, 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 and, you know, everybody'd be upset. But it would have essentially accepted that Joe Biden was president. January 6th was obviously designed for a different purpose, which was to stop the actual certification of the vote and stop the peaceful transfer of yeah. power. So that, I think, was an important aspect of this whole thing, and, and I thought it was I thought it was quite compelling. Yeah, and that's one of the reasons I wanted to put There was a lot, a lot to unpack. We're, we're not going to be able to get to even uh, a tenth of it, I'm afraid, but I, I that's why I wanted to play that audio of all of those uh, right-wingers, it was like 
uh, he lit a spark when he sent out that tweet uh, in the middle of the night on December 19, right after that, uh, that that crazy meeting at the White House. And they responded. That went out you know, to all the right-wingers. They knew exactly what he was calling them there to do. Uh, David Ferris, uh, since this is the first time we've had uh, we've, t- we've spoken to you during these hearings, I'm, I'm wondering about your overall takeaway to date and your general thoughts on today's hearing in particular. Sure, yeah. Um, I, you know, I think big picture, um, you know, I think these hearings have a number of different purposes, right? Um, one is to, I think, provide concrete evidence of a systematic and sustained effort to um, extra-constitutionally overturn the results of the 2020 election. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, and those are the threads. We call that, that we call that, we call that stealing the election. But yeah, extra-constitutionally extra yeah. <laughs> overturning, that's good too. Go ahead. Yeah, That's a coup. They were running a coup, right? Uh-huh. Um, and so uh, we've learned a lot more during these hearings about the mechanics of that coup, about who was in on it, about who plotted what, about their PowerPoint presentation, about what kind of pardons they asked for. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that the, the bottom line is that the people who were um, putting these uh, these plans in the motion knew perfectly well that they were illegal, right? um, that Trump was told that they were illegal. Mm-hmm. And that a, a really significant part of these hearings, to me, is, is getting um, relatively sane, <laughs> I don't know what that means anymore, relatively sane Republicans um, <laughs> on record in front of the camera saying, like, yeah, like, this was nuts. Like, we told right? them this was crazy. Yeah. Um, it, it, including people who had run all kinds of other interference for the president, like like Bill Barr, who mm-hmm. buried the Mueller report right? Right. <laughs> preemptively for him. Um, and so for Bill Barr to come out and go on, on, you know, on national television and say, like, yeah, the election was over. He lost. I told him he lost. Um, and to have Cipollone come in there and be like, whoa, I saw this meeting and it was a bunch of crazy people. And they tried to have Sid Powell um, appointed special counsel and they were talking about martial law, um, all of which just sort of underscores um, something I think people have a really hard time accepting. Um, which is that the you know the sitting president of the United States um, attempted to install himself in power illegally? Yep. Um, and you don't and like you don't need to know anything. Like January sixth does not even had to have happened, right? For that all to be true, correct? Right? Like there are, mm-hmm. there are two separate crimes here. They're you know they're part of the same mm-hmm. general crime universe, yep. but they are two <laughs> separate things. Um, and I think the committee has done a wonderful job establishing the sort of the basic facts of. Um, of that attempt, and to and to pin it on Trump and his allies, um, to show that he he knew what was happening, even if he was deluded, right? Like I ca- I can't go up to someone on the street and kill them because I think they're a robot, right? If everybody's like, no, oh, that person's a person, not <laughs> a robot, don't kill mm-hmm. them, and I do it anyway. I you know I still go to prison, right? Um, yeah. So whatever Trump did or didn't believe, um, it, what the committee has established is that he was told repeatedly um, by people in positions of authority who who knew what they were talking about that that the, the election was not stolen. And then there's this stuff on the day of. Right? Um, there's, the, there's the tweets leading up to January 6th. There's the, the operational links um, between, between these right-wing militias and extremist groups and the, and the Trump White House mm-hmm. and Trump's allies. Um, that, that is also extremely important. Um, exactly what it is that they're, they're trying to pin on him, um, ultimately it's not up to me, and it's when it gets up to the committee. Um, but I think what they can show... Um, is that there were figures in Trump world, including probably Trump himself, um, who knew that there were armed protesters coming to the Capitol to do his bidding, um, and that he wanted to take them to the Capitol to lead the insurrection. Um, the fact that he didn't actually get to do it in the end <laughs> does not obviate the fact that it all happened in the first mm-hmm. place. And so I am also 
Um, you asked if, if there's diminishing returns on this. I don't think so. Um, but I am eager to hear next week because to me, one of the most damning things that happened on January 6th um, was not necessarily his speech prior to the insurrection. It was like what the dude was doing for those three hours yeah. Yeah. Um, before the insurrection was put down. Right? Like, what was he doing? Where are the missing call logs? Um, and, and so I, that's, I'm just curious what, you know, uh, I'm very eager to see next week's and, and I think that, yeah, <laughs> I think I think that is coming next because that is the big hole. Uh, everything he knew about everything. I mean, that was that has been clear in each and every one of these hearings. He knew everything. He knew there was no fraud. He knew that what he was trying was unlawful. And yes, he was involved. He had his hand in every single thing. And Let's, directing every single thing. And directing it. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I don't know how I don't know how one escapes accountability. And David, you said, you know, sort of two separate crimes. I'd say there was more. I mean, there were multiple attempts to steal the election. He tried every way that he could. Uh, let's talk about the uh, the first part of the hearing. They focused on that, that crazy, unhinged December 18 meeting at the White House with Powell and Flynn and Patrick Byrne of Overstock.com. Later, I think Giuliani joined. White House staffers eventually found out about the meeting. They came in. There was a shouting. It, it got, you know, quite loud. Um, they were fighting about what Powell and the rest wanted to issue an executive order to seize voting machines and to name Sidney Powell as the special counsel to investigate and start arresting people. The cable channels during uh, uh, during the first break of today's hearing sort of described the first part of the hearing as explosive testimony. And I guess that it was. But maybe I don't know, maybe not so much uh, for people like me who had been paying attention to what had been reported about that December 18 meeting and that executive order, which, you know, quoted from a, a lawsuit that we've been reporting on for a long time against the voting machines in Georgia, long before Republicans decided they didn't like voting machines. So, you know, was there, Heather, was there something explosive there that maybe I may have missed? Or is it just the, the, the amount of detail that was that they brought to it? No, actually, the opposite is true. There's way more detail about that meeting than what they said. <laughs> it's way, way crazier than than what they presented, and not not through no fault of theirs. It's just it's so crazy. It would have yeah. taken two hours mm -hmm. to kind of unpack everything that happened in that meeting. Mm -hmm. And the reason we know this is because there was there were reports right after the meeting that were in the New York Times and other you know major outlets mm -hmm. about it. But Jonathan Swan of Politico. Did, instead of writing a book, what he did was sort of write a bunch of very, very long uh, articles. I'm sorry, not political, ax axios. Uh, long articles about vi various sort of um, events that happened during this post-election period, mm -hmm. and which I thought was kind of cool, because usually they write a book and make a bunch of money. But anyway, he did and wait for, And don't tell us, uh, you know, in and real don't time. Tell, Until months yeah, later, but, right. Yeah. So he wrote this very early on, and it that it was explosive. I mean, it was one of those things where you read it and just went, oh, my dear God. Yeah. Because it, from the very moment of how did they get into the White House, well, it turns out, nobody knew at the time, but it turns out later that it was a... It was an aide to Peter Navarro, and they kind of they, they literally snuck them in the back way <laughs> to get to the president God. to tell him, you know, what they to present him with this executive order. Mm -hmm. I mean, that was the that was the point. And that executive order, they came; it was fully drafted. Yep. It wasn't just sort of 
something they came in and said, well, we think you should write up an executive order. They had it written that she would be the special counsel. And more importantly, what they had decided was to use some national security uh, and uh, the National Emergencies Act that Trump had signed back in 2018. And what it did was it had to do with uh, cybersecurity. And so that's where all this weird stuff about the Italian satellites Mm -hmm. and, you know, Venezuelans and uh, crazy stuff from China, Mm -hmm. all the foreign interference stuff that was coming from Sidney Powell, that's what that was about, was so they could invoke this Uh, National Emergencies Act and use that as an excuse to declare martial law and have the military come in and seize the voting machines. That's how crazy this stuff was. Yeah. And it was, you know, it wasn't just like, you know, I think people have the impression that maybe Sidney Powell was reading stuff off the Internet. Well, she was, but there was, it was there for a purpose. They were trying to, to use this as a way. Now, granted, everybody in that meeting, other than the kooks, you know, mm-hmm. including, you know, Byrne from Overstock.com, who apparently was stuffing his face with, you know, b- uh, pigs in a blanket all night long. <laughs> uh, seriously, okay. <laughs> part of the story. Um, and he's there because he says, well, I know how this stuff works because I, I spent $18 million bribing Hillary Clinton for an FBI sting. And everybody's looking at him going, what, what? the hell are you talking about? <laughs> what? But anyway, um, just the, 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 everybody else was saying that's crazy, including, by the way, Rudy Giuliani, because Giuliani was there. And he, he wasn't there in the beginning. Trump called him and put him on speakerphone. Mm-hmm. And then Rudy suited up and came to the White House to join the meeting later, mm-hmm. because not because he's any less crazy, but he was crazy in a completely different way. He thought that their play had to do with the vote fraud in the states and and the Eastman stuff and all that. He wasn't in favor of this national security thing, so they were arguing about it. And then, of course, there was so-called Team Normal, Team Normal, who were saying, um, you know, obviously you can't do this. This is absolutely nuts. No special counsel, et cetera. So this went on all night, and Trump entertained this. As, yeah. And and the reason that he entertained it was he said at least they're fighting for me. And they're going, but this is crazy. And he's going, well, you know, at least they're out there trying to do something. Uh, What's wrong with you? And y- so that, I mean, the whole thing was absolutely bonkers. It, yeah, it was yeah, mad. I, the fact that it even took place, uh, you know, there was no no planning, no, uh, you know, uh, scheduling for this. They somehow literally snuck into the White House and they were given a, you know, three, four, five hour audience uh, with the president of the United States, somehow. Uh, as far as the, uh, I gotta, I gotta. Well, get, yeah, I know you gotta on. get to a break, but yeah. just really quickly, I think the uh, the committee is doing an excellent job of connecting the dots between all of these different the efforts that they were trying to do to steal, I should say, the election. And that starts with that White House meeting. That seems to be the trigger point, the spark, as you say, where the riot. Began. At that point, the anything, insurrection was uh, was set in motion. If you're willing to do that, anything goes at that point. And Heather, I'm glad you connected that dot uh, to the National Emergencies Act or whatever that was called um, uh, between that and Italy and Germany and the ridiculous things they were claiming about Venezuela. I should note, just for full disclosure, that comes from my own reporting from Venezuela and Hugo Chavez. Uh, and the voting machines years and years ago, uh, about a decade or so ago, that Sidney Powell found plucked out of 
uh, my coverage and and turned it into a uh, mangled and bastardized. Thank you uh, to to pretend it was going on now. Even though, by the way, Hugo Chavez died about ten years ago. Uh, <laughs> before I get to the break, David uh, Ferris, as a political science guy and, and as a guy who was called on Democrats to fight hard and even play dirty, uh, as your book title uh, proclaims, what would have happened? Can you give us a quick picture, uh, as far as you can tell, had tr- Donald Trump actually ordered? The military to begin seizing voting machines as these guys wanted. What might that have led to across the country in mid-December of 2020? Well, I don't know. I mean, all I can tell you is complete bedlam. You know, um, I think one thing that goes underappreciated about this discussion of the December 18th meeting is that it was four days after the Electoral College had met. Um, and, and certified the results of the election. This mm-hmm. is all the states that certified their votes. The Electoral College had, had quote-unquote, met mm-hmm. to do its job. And here these guys were at the White House, like, scheming about how to undo it um, when it was already done. Mm-hmm. Um, and so in order from the President of the United States to declare martial law over a, over a fiction and then to have the United States military running around precinct to precinct, I don't even know how that would work, logistically, I'm sorry, but <laughs> yeah. precinct to precinct, you know, seizing, seizing these voting machines. Um, just just seems like a recipe for for pandemonium, which I think is probably what they wanted. Yeah. Um, I, I don't think the I don't think it would have been like okay, you know, the, the country accepts this martial law uncritically. The military does its job, and then they then they sort of clinically sort through the, the evidence as they see it. Um, I think it would have triggered um, just just absolute chaos, both um, both legal and then also social chaos. I think yeah. as, um, as people who had been I think very reluctant. To acknowledge the threat of what the Trump people were doing during this time period, would would finally have seen the very grave danger um, in front of them, and, and would have had to mobilize very quickly to to protect the results of the election against um, against this new onslaught. And I'm not sure who or what entities would have obeyed those orders. You know, I think that it could have triggered a, con- a constitutional crisis within a constitutional crisis. Yeah. Mm. Um, which ultimately would have been resolved by the courts, which I think would have locked them out. But. <laughs> Uh, what we think, but, but, but who knows? Who knows at that point? Uh, it, it's it's. I mean, it's really. You're right. It's unfathom unfathomable, which is why I asked you to fathom it rather than me, because <laughs> I I can't even imagine what would happen. Let me take a quick break here. We will come back uh, with special coverage of day seven of the House January six committee hearings with our special guests, uh, Salon's Heather Digby Parton and Roosevelt University's David Ferris, and of course the delightful Desi Doyen. All of that and more, much more, straight ahead on the Bradcast. I'm Brad Friedman. <laughs> What the public hears on the public airwaves matters. At the Bradcast, we do our best to bring you accurate news and analysis on the issues that actually matter, and we do it all independently without corporate or political influence. But we can't do it without you, now more than ever. Please help us stay on your public airwaves by going to bradblog.com donate to help keep us going. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. There was a real question in my mind and a real concern, you know, particularly after the attorney general had reached a conclusion that there wasn't sufficient election fraud to change the outcome of the election. When other people kept suggesting that there was, the answer is, what is it? And at some point, you'd have to put up or shut up. Can the federal government seize voting machines? It's a terrible idea for the country. That's not how we do things in the United States. 
But the idea that the federal government could come in and seize election machines, that's, I, don't, I don't understand why we would tell you why that's a terrible idea. I see the moon yeah. Even Trump loyalist White House counsel Pat Cipollone uh, could see that this was a terrible idea. That was from his testimony finally given just last Friday to the uh, January 6th Committee on Videotape, explaining how uh, over and over again, uh, Pat Cipollone, White House counsel, asked to see the evidence for the supposed fraud that Donald Trump kept claiming and that they never showed to him and how he advised that it would be madness to seize the nation's voting machines as Trump very nearly came to do uh, with an executive order drafted up for him by crazy attorneys Sidney Powell and federal felon Michael Flynn. Anyway, welcome back to the broadcast special coverage of day seven of the House January 6th committee hearings with my guests, Heather Digby-Parton of Salon, David Ferris of Roosevelt University and Newsweek. Uh, David Ferris, um, well, let me when the committee came into being, they declared that they were going to review every email, text, phone call, conversation from the White House and everywhere else in the lead up to January 6th. It sure seems like they've done that uh, today. The committee focused in on two conversations that Donald Trump had with his former advisor turned podcast host, Steve Bannon, based on phone records that the committee obtained. Congresswoman Stephanie Murphy explained how they tracked the phone calls with uh, what by with, with what Bannon then went on to uh, on his show to announce shortly thereafter. The committee has learned from the White House phone logs that the president spoke to Steve Bannon, his close advisor, at least twice on January 5th. The first conversation they had lasted for 11 minutes. Listen to what Mr. Bannon said that day after the first call he had with the president. All hell is going to break loose tomorrow. It's all converging, and now we're on, as they say, the point of attack, right? The point of attack tomorrow. I'll tell you this. It's not going to happen like you think it's going to happen, okay? It's going to be quite extraordinarily different. And all I can say is strap in. Uh, David Ferris, that sure seems like a smoking gun, no? You know, (laughs) it's a gun. You know, like everything that is involved with Trump's incitement of the riot and his knowledge or his foreknowledge of what is going to happen, mm-hmm. um, I think so far has really has danced around the question of whether he knew exactly what was going to happen. Um, and so this test is, you know, this stuff with Bannon today, I would also point to the revelation of Trump's draft tweet that he never sent, um, but that did say, let's go to the Capitol, right? Um, mm-hmm. and, and one of the things they had trouble pinning on Trump is like, well, did he mean to send the mob to the Capitol, or was it just sort of like a happy accident? You know, like, um, what what was the level of planning, and what was the level of premeditation in terms of what happened on January 6th? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think what we learned today, and what we've learned over the previous um, several weeks, is that, at the least, the president knew that there were going to be uh, armed supporters of his at, you know, in, in Washington, D.C. that day, um, that he was going to be commanding them in some respect. Mm-hmm. Um, that he wanted to go to the Capitol. He wanted the group to go to the Capitol, um, which means he knew that he wanted an armed mob to travel to the Capitol. Um, exactly what they thought was going to happen inside, I don't know that I've gotten a really clear picture of that from the committee so well, far. I, I, um, but uh, I think, you know, uh, disrupting the electoral count um, is at the core of it for the, 
for the coup plotters in the White House, right? Like, was, was murdering Nancy Pelosi uh, uh, on the agenda at any of these meetings? I don't know. Um, but, uh, but certainly the plan, um, and we learned this from, from some of Eastman's stuff, too, mm-hmm. um, was, to, was to have Pence stop, you know, stop the count in, in some respects, right? Like, um, to, to not go through with the certification of the election. Well, and they- from there... You know, then then all hell breaks loose, as Steve Bannon said. And you're right. We saw, you know, one point after another, that draft tweet that never went out, part of the one of the drafts from his speech that he ended up giving on, on uh, January 6th, uh, talking about marching to the Capitol. Oh, they took that out. His advisors told him to take it out. Then he ended up improving, throwing it back in, ad-libbing it. Um, you know, Heather, uh, pardon, I, I know that uh, much has been made of Bannon, Steve Bannon's attempt at this point to suddenly offer his testimony to the committee right before his trial for contempt of Congress for refusing to speak to the committee begins next week. Uh, but this moment alone, uh, he gets off the phone with the president and says, oh, this is going to be a, totally different from what you think it's going to be. All I can say is strap in. That moment alone seems to point out how important Steve Bannon's testimony would actually be uh, to the committee here uh, or maybe to law enforcement. I don't know. Well, you would think so. But, you know, is, is Steve Bannon someone we can really assume is going to come up there and, you know, be honest and truthful and tell <laughs> exactly what? I mean, I'd like to say I have, I have my doubts about that. And also the real reason that he did that this week where he, you know, suddenly and on the eve of his trial mm-hmm. announces that he's willing to cooperate after all these months was simply to, you know, to delay that trial. I mean, he mm-hmm. he was trying to do that. The judge yesterday said, no, Dice, he's going to trial it next week, and that's that. And the government is not going to back off that, and the judge agreed that, you know, you don't get to just, you know, put the government through hoops like this, make them spend all this time and money trying to get you to, um, to, to you know, fulfill your duty to follow the law, and then just say, oh, never mind, here we go. Mm-hmm. Now, to your point, would it be great if Steve Bannon... Did that? Absolutely. Would it be great if he would honestly testify? And, there, you know, it's not impossible to believe that he might, under certain circumstances, do that, because he did it before. In the Mueller investigation, he actually mm-hmm. um, testified before them, you know, pretty honestly, at least to the extent that we know. Um, but, you know, the problem is is that is that he's actually implicated in this one, right? I mean, he's part of the conspiracy. It's not just that phone call. There was this war room going on the, at the Willard Hotel in the days before, the, ele- before mm-hmm. the, the insurrection. And, in fact, this is one of the big questions, and I don't know if we'll ever get it answered, but it, w- it would go a lot toward what David was talking about on how much Trump actually knew about this particular part of the plan, which had to do with the Oath Keepers and the Proud Boys and these violent militia members who had come armed and with a plan. There was a plan to, you know, they were going to go up certain steps, they were going to, you know, be at the tunnels, they had guns stashed at other parts of town. I mean, there was an actual plot there to take over the Capitol had they, you know, been able to accomplish that. And, and how much Trump knew about that, we don't know. But we do know that on January 5th, he told Mark Meadows to call Roger Stone, who was deeply involved with the Proud Boys, which we saw today on it at the committee hearing. Mm-hmm. And also to call uh, Mike Flynn, who we know is a total nutball, and God only knows what he had <laughs> planned. But we also know that, that Meadows, if Meadows would testify, he was on a phone call that night on January 5th with the Willard War Room yep. uh, under orders from Donald Trump. 
And I think that's where the real, I mean, Meadows is the one that, that has all the knowledge. Now, he'll claim executive privilege on a lot of things, but he couldn't claim executive privilege on that phone call unless Trump was on it, which would be news in itself, right? Mm. So um, that is sort of the, that whole thing, and I don't know if they're ever going to be able to get to it, because I would have thought they would go there today. Um, because this was sort of the hearing that I was kind of thinking maybe they had some in, more information about that. But I don't think they've actually been able to nail yeah, that, and, seem- and that would be very important. It seems like they haven't yet cracked that Willard war room and what went on inside yeah. there. That's the one place where they haven't gone. We'll see if they get there, and, you know, the, even though they have a primetime hearing or, uh, set for next week that was supposed to sort of be the finale, they've also said they reserve the right to hold more hearings. So that still could be coming. Uh, I want to get both of your thoughts. I'll start with you, Heather. Your your thoughts on the testimony by the two witnesses today, Jason Van Tatenhove, the uh, self-described Oath Keepers propagandist who left them after they began to turn violent and racist, uh, and or uh, Stephen Ayers, the sort of poor sap who actually believed Trump's claims about a stolen election, uh, only to have been arrested for his part in the insurrection, pleaded guilty to it, lost his job, had his life ruined. Uh, Your thoughts on the testimony on Tuesday? Well, I thought it was important, and I think it was very important for one specific reason. You know, what they're trying to do, and I don't know, that maybe they'll do this in the final hearings, or maybe it just comes out in the report where they're trying to put together legislation about what to do about the future. But that's really what their their um, their testimony was about. It wasn't as much about what they what they did. Although Ayers, the, as you call him, the poor sap. I mean, yeah, that's pretty clear, right? I mean, it yeah. was Donald. I love Donald Trump. He told me to come. Yeah. I did what he said, and then he said to leave, and I left. You know, and it ruined my life. Yeah, you know? mm. I mean, I mean, that's that's pretty. You know, kind of a poignant sort of tale. Mm-hmm. Um, but the other testimony about the about the uh, oath keepers, I think, was important to talk about the the level of radicalization that we've seen. That's worthy of a whole set of hearings all by itself, right? And mm-hmm. maybe there will be some. I don't know, uh, but th- but there should be because that is really where the whole thing. I think they're trying to draw together is that we have had this this incredible radicalization that was just turbocharged by Donald Trump and Donald Trump's. MAGA movement, and and that that was was moving into that that um, January sixth insurrection and beyond, right? I mean, in fact, the Oath Keepers and stuff—they've all said they've got more plans, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, we don't know what's going to happen, and you know, it makes you wonder: what if Republicans lose an election at you know the next election yeah. or you know whatever? Cause, because that's really where they're leading. So well, I thought it was important to do that, and and interesting for people who may not be following that sort of end of the story about what's going on with the radicalization and those groups, which, by the way, the Department of Justice, there's a lot of stuff about that going on in all of those prosecutions that are taking place that the Department of Justice is doing. But I just, I don't know if anybody knows about it. But, I mean, it's kind of astonishing. Well, that that part they seem to clearly be focusing on with their seditious uh, conspiracy indictments. It seems like they're on that job. But I'll tell you, David Ferris, I'm, I'm sort of struck... I was struck again today by the number of people that we have seen throughout these hearings, really, whose lives have been turned upside down and or ruined by what Trump did. I'm, I'm, I think back to really one of the most moving uh, hearings with uh, the testimony from Shea Moss and Ruby Freeman, the uh, poll workers in, in Atlanta who were targeted and terrorized by Trump. Um, 
just the number of lives who were, you know, that were ruined by, you know, in service of uh, Trump's egomaniacal scheme to steal the election. That alone seems to cry out for accountability here, no? I think so, yeah. I mean, I, I think that one of the purposes of, of having these guys testify before Congress today was to demonstrate the president's power over, over his supporters um, and to sort of vividly convey to the public that, um, that a, a significant share of his supporters are right-wing extremists, you know, in, in, in their own words. Um, personally, if I was going to Congress to tell the world that the president had ruined my life, I would wear a tie. Um, but <laughs> I'm not an oath keeper, so I don't know. Uh-huh. Um, what, what, I, what I do know is that, um, you know, I don't think that that part of the hearing was necessarily part of a criminal, building a criminal case against the president, right? I think that that part of the hearing was about um, building a, a broader sense in American politics and society um, that there is an active, growing, very dangerous, very well-armed, very well-programmed right-wing extremist movement um, that is, you know, ready and willing to use violence uh, to get what it wants uh, when, when the next opportunity presents itself. Um, for them to, to sort of interfere in American public life and American politics, um, that they will do so, and that the president, that, that Donald Trump himself, um, not only has significant influence over them, right, but that his um, his involvement with these groups has normalized them, it's brought them outside of the margins and the fringes into the mainstream of the Republican Party. Um, and I think any time that you can, you can march one of these people in front of the cameras, um, and have them look repentant, um, but tell the truth, I, I think that you are accomplishing something. <laughs> mm, something. Yeah. yeah. And, and I'll, you know, and hopefully other people see that, take that cue that, yeah, maybe I can be deprogrammed after all of these years of grooming. Yeah, give people an off-ramp. Yeah. Uh, I've got to take a quick break here. We'll come back with um, our, uh, we've got just a few minutes, closing thoughts here, uh, in and including the uh, Liz Cheney uh, <laughs> Easter egg or, or post-credit scene from the uh, MCU Easter egg uh, that she seems <laughs> to drop at the end of each of these hearings uh, regarding Trump and witness tampering. That's straight ahead on our special coverage, Day 7 of the House January 6th Committee with Salon's Heather Digby-Parton, Roosevelt University's David Ferris. Don't go away. I'm Brad Friedman. This is the Bradcast. <laughs> Here at the Bradcast and bradblog.com, we fight for election integrity all year around, like no other media outlet in the nation. But of course, we need your help to do it. Please stop by bradblog.com donate to make an automated monthly pledge of any amount you like, or even just a one-time only contribution to help us remain on your public airwaves and completely independent. The fight for voting rights, civil rights, and to save our planet continues. Please help us continue that fight independently over your public airwaves by stopping by bradblog.com donate right now. Go ahead, do it right now. From Desi Doyen and myself, thank you. Mr. Chairman, as you know better than any other member of this committee from the wrenching struggle for voting rights in your beloved Mississippi, the problem of politicians whipping up mob violence to destroy fair elections is the oldest domestic enemy of constitutional democracy in America. Abraham Lincoln knew it too. 
In 1837, a racist mob in Alton, Illinois, broke into the offices of an abolitionist newspaper and killed its editor, Elijah Lovejoy. Lincoln wrote a speech in which he said that no transatlantic military giant could ever crush us as a nation, even with all of the fortunes in the world. But if downfall ever comes to America, he said, we ourselves would be its author and finisher. If racist mobs are encouraged by politicians to rampage and terrorize, Lincoln said, they will violate the rights of other citizens and quickly destroy the bonds of social trust necessary for democracy to work. Mobs and demagogues will put us on a path to political tyranny, Lincoln said. As we'll see today, this very old problem has returned with new ferocity today as a president who lost an election deployed a mob which included dangerous extremists to attack the constitutional system of election and the peaceful transfer of power. And as we'll see, the creation of the internet and social media has given today's tyrants tools of propaganda and disinformation that yesterday's despots could only have dreamed of. On civil war, on civil war, how long must we fight this on civil war? Good question. Same old Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from Bradblog.com. Special coverage, day seven of the House January 6th committee hearings with Heather Digby-Parton of Salon, David Ferris of Newsweek and Roosevelt University. Uh, that was uh, Congressman Jamie Raskin, part of his remarks on the historical moment that we are all uh, that all faced with following Donald Trump's attempt to overthrow the American government itself because he lost an election. So, yeah, welcome back to the broadcast. Um, the, uh, got just a, a minute or two here. Uh, Heather, I'll start with you. Uh, at the very end of the uh, hearings on Tuesday, Liz Cheney, who's been sending these messages in her closing comments uh, each time, uh, she said, um, one more item. After, our, uh, after last meeting, uh, t- uh, Donald Trump tried to call one of our witnesses. That person declined. To answer Donald Trump's call, she didn't say who the witness was. She said they instead contacted their lawyer. Their lawyer contacted the committee. And we will take any effort to influence witness testimony very seriously. Heather, any clue who that could be? And uh, if we, will we hear more about that next time? And, and will the DOJ, if nothing else, indict a former president for witness tampering at least? Well, I mean, obviously, I don't have a clue, um, but I, I'm willing to take a guess that it might be Sarah Matthews, who is the um, she was in the in the uh, communications office, mm. and she is, is said that she, she has come forward to testify. We know that, and has not testified yet. So that, oh. yeah, that's just one person that we know that um, that you know has not yet because she said very specifically that it was that it was somebody that they hadn't heard from yet mm. um, so you know that's my guess but I don't I don't know it could be anybody right I mean, well I, but it maybe sounds it's Melania you know. uh, but I mean it sounds exactly like what uh, Mark Meadows did uh, that we have now learned Mark Meadows did when uh, he tried to uh, send that message to Cassidy Hutchinson about right. we're watching very closely what you do now you got apparently Donald Trump himself I, I, it's like witness tampering. 
Doesn't he remember that the mob boss never makes the call himself? I guess he must not. be getting a little frantic. I guess. Well, <laughs> or himself. or he's getting a little cocky, which sort of brings me to my last question here for David. Uh, uh, David, you wrote at Newsweek last week that our institutions and indeed the very existence of electoral democracy itself are in clear and present danger. We simply cannot afford to worry about ruffling fragile feathers of Trump's MAGA minions. Uh, and said that when it comes to Attorney General Merrick Garland's decision about whether to prosecute a former president, uh, you say that, you know, those MAGA minions must be met head on uh, with the full power of the Department of Justice, you know, or voters themselves can hardly be expected to do the, to do the difficult work of defending democracy if the country's top law enforcement officials refuse to do their part. What is your sense today of whether the DOJ will do their job and whether voters will do theirs in November? And how much does DOJ action ultimately influence those voters in November? It's a great question. I mean, I do I do have difficulty believing um, that Democrats would go through this whole month long. Uh, public hearing process <laughs> presenting a, a pretty airtight case against the former president if they were not pretty confident um, that the end result would be some form of action from the DOJ and Attorney General Merrick Garland um, to, to indict um, President Trump and some of his associates for their role um, in, in trying to overthrow the government. I think it's important that they do so. I, can't, I know I can't say one way or another whether they will, mm-hmm. but um, for, for one of many reasons, so, so one of which is that there are a lot of little Trump lieutenants running for office around the country um, who are planning to do things like uh, manipulate the vote count in 2024 or use extra constitutional procedures um, to, to install the Republican candidate for president um, in, into office. That is, there are a lot of people who are contemplating committing crimes um, in another conspiracy against the United States. Um, and if you do not show them that there are consequences for the people who did it the first time, um, I, I don't see how, you could, how those people could draw any other conclusion and that they'll get away with it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and the fact that Trump, um, I, I wish that we were not in this position where we had to talk about indicting a former president. I really, I, it's not great. Um, <laughs> but I, I just don't think he can be allowed to skate um, without really, really jeopardizing our democracy. We are going to leave it at that cliffhanger. Will the president, the former president, be allowed to skate? I guess that's been the cliffhanger for the last <laughs> year and a half or so. I got to get out. Uh, I, I want to thank uh, both of you guys. Uh, you're terrific as always. David Ferris, Associate Professor of Political Science at Roosevelt University, also now writing over at Newsweek. Uh, you can find uh, his work over there, newsweek.com, and of course on the Twitters at David M. Ferris. Heather Digby Parton can always be found at both salon.com and digbysblog.net in addition to the twitters at digby56 thanks guys appreciate it uh thanks as well to our producer as always desi yeah. doyan and to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us if you missed any portion of today's program you can download it and every other one we've done for free at bradblog.com all of which is made possible by those of you who stop by bradblog.com slash donate to help us continue our 100% listener-supported truth-telling radio. Uh, you can drop me email. I'm bradcast at bradblog.com. On the Facebooks and the Twitters, I am the Brad Blog. We'll see you there until we see you here next time, hopefully tomorrow. I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. Good luck, world.